Thanks, everyone. Hey, the kids are dismissed for kids' praise. And uh, for those who have your phone apps or your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 6. Um, actually, we're going to skip back. Uh, next, uh, next week, Pastor Jeremy will be preaching on turning the other cheek. Uh, so we're skipping back to uh, chapter 5, I think. But Matthew 6, uh, starting verse 12 this morning. Uh, but, but before I go on, um, Jesus uh, was approached by his disciples, and his, and his disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus said, this is how you should pray. And then, he, of course, he, he gave them the famous words of, of the Lord's Prayer that we all know and recite. He said, uh, prayer is, to, um, first and foremost, a, re- a relationship with God. So begin your prayers by saying, our Father. And then, secondly, there, reverence for God. Hallowed be thy name. Worship him. Praise him. And then move into your realignment with God's priorities. Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And then move into your your personal petitions, your prayer requests. Reliance upon God. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord. And then the last two that I want to talk about today are five and six, and it's the restoration with God and others. Forgive us our sins, Lord, even as we forgive those who sin against us, and then a releasing of God's power. Uh, Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. We'll begin with restoration with God and others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice Jesus immediately gives us a caveat during this portion of the, of the prayer. The caveat is, help me, Lord, to know how much I've been forgiven by you that I might forgive others in the same way. He assumes that we've released others from their debts because we've been released of our debts from him. And so that's the assumption. Uh, And he goes on in verse 14 to say, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. That's a caveat. In other words, God's saying, pay it forward. You know, I blessed you and I'll bless others. Pay it forward. Unlike what I told the crescendo bunch last night, I said, you know, when I was in McDonald's line and I was going through the line, I told the cashier there in the window, I said, you, you've heard of pay it forward, haven't you? He said, yeah, well, I'm practicing pay it backwards today. And the person behind me, I'm going to give them the opportunity to pay for me, I said. So, and she looked at, no, I, did, I didn't do that. But I'm thinking about doing that. Um, a debt in verse 12 is something that is owed, that must be paid back. You know, when we have a debt, we have to pay it back. But in verse 14, the language has changed to sin. Now, a sin is a debt that only God can free us from. And that's why we can't forgive other people's sins. Only God can forgive sins. But we forgive those who sin against us. We can forgive the person, and then God can forgive the sin. But we can release people from debts. So that was just the interesting insight that I read this past week. Now, St. Augustine, one of the first uh, early fathers of Christianity, he, he labeled this request for forgiveness as the terrible petition. The terrible petition because if we harbor an unforgiving spirit while we pray to be forgiven in the same way we forgive others, then we're actually asking God not to forgive our sin. 
If we really mean what we're praying, we're asking God, hey, forgive me the way I, I forgive others. And, but if we don't forgive them, then we're actually praying, don't forgive my sins, Lord, because I'm unwilling to forgive their sins. There was a woman named Esther Pauline Friedman and her sister, Pauline Esther Friedman, they were born as identical twins in 1918 to Russian Jewish parents, immigrants, and they settled in South Dakota. From birth, they were inseparable. They wore the same outfits, they enrolled in the same classrooms as elementary school, all the way through high school. They played the same instrument, a violin. They carried identical purses. They slept in the same twin bed. They attended the same college. They co-wrote the same gossip column for the college newspaper. And they married at the same day in 1939 at a double ceremony, just shy of their 21st birthday. Several weeks later after their marriage, Esther Pauline, one of the sisters, landed a job for Chicago Sun-Times as the, an advice column writer. And she went by the name of Ann Landers. Her sister, Pauline Esther, would find a job doing the very same thing, yet but for San Francisco Chronicle on the West Coast. Abigail Van Buren, she went by the name of Dear Abby. Ann Landers became so angry with Abby that they actually wouldn't speak for the next eight years because Abby copied her into this profession a reconciliation attempt came in 1964, but skirmishes continued. Just a few years after Anne's death, Anne and Abby experienced a major falling out once again where they would never speak again or ever reconcile before their deaths. These two women were revered by millions around the world as they, as they gave out dispensed of their wisdom, especially concerning relationships, yet they too we're living in broken relationship. Why? Because they were unwilling to forgive each other. Which one should take the first step in forgiveness? Who should be the first one? The offender or the offended? What do you think? For the follower of Christ, it really doesn't matter. In fact, it doesn't matter at all Jesus said, you be the first one to take the step, regardless of who's at fault. You initiate. Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar of worship, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, namely, you did something to offend them, so you're kind of the offender here, even if you're misunderstood, then leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Take the initiative. If they think what you did offended them. Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, in other words, they're the offender this time, you go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. For the purpose of reconciliation, you be the one to initiate. Someone called it the 101% principle. Even if you're 1% wrong and they're 99% wrong, then you take the 1% and you invest 100% energy into owning your part and making things right. The 101% principle. Why is God so insistent that his children be the first to respond? Because that's who he is. And that's what he does. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was the initiator. 
1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So God also wants us to forgive because he wants us to walk in freedom. Unforgiveness clogs our spiritual pipes from being able to flow with his joy and his strength and his peace. We get clogged. Like a teacher gave an assignment to her high school class for a grade. This is for a grade, she said. Um, Here are plastic bags for each one of you. And up front we have sacks of potatoes. And this is what I want you to do. Every one of you, if you can think of someone that that you're kind of holding a grudge against or that you're at odds with, then I want you to come up and grab as many potatoes as you have, put them in your bag that represent the people you're struggling with. Put their little initials on them as a reminder. And so they all did that and they thought it was kind of fun. This is a cool assignment. And they were all kind of thinking it was kind of funny actually too. Well, they were uh, told to add a potato throughout the week if if they have another altercation of some sort. And so they, they all did that. And again, laughing, you know, I have another potato head. And um, they were told to carry the bag everywhere that they went. If they're driving, it should be, be sitting right next to them. If they're in class, they should be sitting right there on their desk. If they're on a date, you have the bag of potatoes with you. If you are whatever, always have this bag of potatoes. After the week, The teacher announced, oh, you thought this was just for a week. No, this is contingent. This is going on for a month. And again, a reminder, it's for a grade. And so they continued to add potatoes and it became less and less comical, became heavy. The the bags became heavy. They became a hassle. After a couple weeks, potatoes started to become moldy, smelly, and they began to sprout some eyes. Carrying around unforgiveness is like that. We, we think that forgiveness is a gift to the other person, but r- really it's a gift to us. It unclogs our junk, if you will. It sets us free. That's why the Lord requires it. But forgiveness is, our, we, when we think of forgiveness, we can mistake it for some other things. Like forgiveness is not reconciliation with the other person Always. Sometimes they're they're two separate things, you know, because you can forgive someone and they're unwilling to reconcile, right? Romans 12 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes it's not possible, the other person, or nor is it safe in some cases. Secondly, trusting in the offender. Forgiveness is not trusting the offender, obviously, Forgiveness is not forgetting the offense, doesn't give us spiritual amnesia simply because we pray to prayer forgiveness. Forgiveness is not negating accountability or, or uh, ignoring justice. Sometimes justice needs to take place. Forgiveness is not instant healing from the offense. Forgiveness doesn't understand why the offense happens oftentimes, and we don't need to understand. That's what forgiveness is not. Now, forgiveness is surrendering the right to rehearse in our minds and play over and over again and meditate on it, the offense, and oh, you become angry, you lay in bed, and you just want to, you think of ways to retaliate. That's what forgiveness is. It's surrendering that right. Forgiveness is releasing the offender from the debt. Father, forgive my debt as I forgive my debtor. In other words, forgiveness is taking them off of our hook of retaliation 
in judgment and placing them on God's hook. God is the judge, I am not. I am never the judge, God is the judge, and he's very, very capable and wise. Glenn McDonald wrote, forgiveness at the personal level means tearing up the debt sheets that we hold over people. Instead of anything, I'm sorry, instead of saying, you owe me, we lower our buckets into the deep aquifer of God's grace and mercy and treat others as God has treated us. Thirdly, forgiveness is choosing to trust that God is good even when we don't understand what he's doing. Forgiveness is choosing to pray for the desire to forgive when we don't have an ounce of forgiveness in us. And forgiveness is choosing to ask God to gradually heal my hurts, our hurts. Because sometimes we don't experience the freedom for a while. It's a journey. It's a continually continual surrender, daily surrender. I offer myself as a living sacrifice on your altar day after day, Lord. And gradually he changes us. Finally, prayer is not only restoration with God and others, but prayer means releasing God's power. In verse 13, and lead us not to temptation, Lord, In other words, save us from ourselves. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Save us from the devil, from Satan and his power. John G. Patton was a missionary in the new Hebrides Island. I think that's Hebrides Islands. And he was a missionary there, and he was amongst a, a pagan people, tribe, who didn't know anything of the gospel, and they resisted and even hated the gospel at first. And over that side of the island, he, he says, over the other side of the island, all of their sacred men were at work trying to kill me by their magical arts and their incantations. Messengers arrived from every quarter of the island inquiring anxiously about my health and wondering if I was not yet feeling sick. You feeling sick yet? Oh, no, okay, go back and do some more chants and incantations. But when the magic arts couldn't touch this Christian missionary couple because of their dependency on, on God, they turned, the tribal people turned to more aggressive tactics. And this is what he writes in his, in his book. He writes, One night the hostile natives surrounded the mission station, station intent on burning out the patents and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed in faith throughout the terror-filled night that God would deliver them. And when daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers gone. And years later, the chief of the tribe accepted Christ. No, about a year later, uh, the chief, uh, through their missionary efforts, this tribal chief accepted Christ. And so in conversation with this tribal chief, Patton's asked them, uh, do you recall about a year ago that night when you came to attack us, to burn our hut down and kill us? Why didn't you do that? And the chief replied, well, because of all the men who were all around you. And Patton knew of no men who were present. He said, there was no one with us. But the chief insisted he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Prayer is powerful. Yet praying in faith doesn't always guarantee 
our physical safety. Author Oswald Chambers says, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. It's kind of faith in my faith, if you will, you know. But faith means whether I'm visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in the fiery furnace. And this is where the principle of Romans 8 comes into play. God will work all things out for the good, even when we don't understand them. He worked all them out for the good and for his glory, for those who trust in him. God's power is always released, though, when we pray. We may not understand it, we may not see it, but God's power is always released when we pray. So don't give up praying. Don't feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, because they're not. Uh, there's another means of exp- to experience God's release of power, and that's coupling fasting with prayer. Prayer and fasting. Matthew 6. Um, when you fast, again, Jesus is assuming that people are fasting when he said, when you fast, not if you fast. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, you have received your reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you fast, you'll be rewarded if you do it with the right heart. In some way, we'll be rewarded. Again, he's addressing the pharisaical mindset that people are doing all these external behaviors to be rewarded by others for their righteousness and maturity. And, and Jesus said, don't have anything to do with that. But when you fast, do so without people knowing. Many Christians have read The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. This was on the bestseller list for years. But how about the 75 instances and references to fasting in the Bible? 44 found in the Old Testament and 31 in the New Testament. Do we pay attention to these references for success in our lives? Acts 13.2, they prayed for wisdom. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. So they were, they were granted wisdom when they were fasting and praying and they understood the God, God's will specifically. Acts 4, again, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with fast prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. And then we fast for God's power to be revealed. In Matthew 17, when um, Jesus and disciples were coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, they they approached the other disciples who were trying to heal this demon-possessed boy, and the other disciples were unable to, and then Jesus cast the demon out of the boy, and and this is what he said at following. He said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21. Some translations leave out and fasting, but many include it, prayer and fasting. But, but I thought the Christian faith was about the great gift of grace, not works. It is, but that doesn't preclude that our, our cooperation with God, you know? Um, for example, 1 Timothy, Paul instructs his disciple Timothy, train yourself up to be godly. Train yourself. It doesn't happen automatically. You must be in training 
Uh, Titus 2.11, for the grace, there's the grace, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So grace in our cooperation with God's grace go hand in hand here. Philippians 2, one more example. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We're working it out as God is working it in. Um, for example, if I don't read and study, then I won't grow in my knowledge, whatever I'm reading about, right? It doesn't have to be spiritual. If I don't feed on the word of God, then I will remain spiritually malnourished as the word of God gives me food for my soul. If I never uh, fast as an act of obedience, I will never experience all that God has for me. Now we think of fasting as what? Not eating, right? Abstaining from food. But the Puritans summed up the real meaning of fasting. The Puritans said fasting is actually a spiritual feast for the soul. It is what normal believers do to fatten their souls. In other words, to build our spiritual strength, to build our faith. Greg Gibson was a young man who traveled with both Lynn and me and on subsequent years in a music ministry team of like seven or eight people went around the country. That's how I ended up in Kansas. Went around the country playing music. I was the drummer. My wife was a singer. Greg Gibson, though, was a sound man. Prior to him joining the team, though, Greg Gibson had encountered a serious form of cancer. And he became very sick and had to be flown to a children's hospital in another state. And a family friend from Texas felt compelled to pray for Greg. God laid it on his heart. And not only pray, but to fast and pray. And after about a week, um, this young man who was fasting and praying felt compelled to hop on a plane and fly to the hospital where Greg Gibson was in critical condition and pray over him. And so the, this family friend hopped on the plane and did so. And the, the day he prayed over Greg Gibson, that very night, Greg Gibson was up, walking in the hospital hallways, pushing his IV pole. After further tests, the doctor said, you're healed. This is a miracle. And so he was miraculously healed. Not only was he healed, he was strong enough a, a couple years later to join this traveling ministry team for, for two years, live on the road in a van, a 15-passenger van, basically. And he continues to be healed to this day. The doctors declared healing. Prayer is powerful. Prayer and fasting is powerful. Many awakenings and revivals throughout history began with groups of, small groups of people just praying for their land. And then God heard their prayer and saw their fasting and did something miraculous. Many believe, though, that for America, it's too late for revival and awakening based on the studies that have shown, been shown for the 26 world powers in the past that have, in history, that have collapsed. Given all the signs that we see in America that are mimicking the signs of the other 26 world powers that collapsed, including uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Ottoman, the Mongol, the British Empire, and then recently the Soviet Union, we've seen them all crash and collapse as world powers because of their sin and degradation. All the signs that led up to their collapse, on an average, it was 238 years of degradation, of 
sin led to their collapse, 238 years. We in America stand at 244 years since 1776. We're six years beyond our due date, and we have all the signs that the other world powers had that led up to their collapse. But it's not all hopeless. We looked at this like a month ago. It's not all hopeless because God is merciful. However, God gives us a caveat in 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. When I, when I preached on this passage a month, month and a half ago, some people said, thanks, thanks, John, for preaching the truth against the evil people. I'm thinking, no, you've missed the point. The point is, if my people, if you and if I humble ourselves and pray, then the land will be healed. Not if those sinful people out there repent. No, if we humble ourselves and pray, it begins with the church. And the primary means of humbling ourselves is prayer. Are we people of prayer? Or do we just pray before meals and before bedtime with our grandkids or whatever? Are we people of prayer, humbly dependent on him? So much so that we're even willing to fast occasionally, acknowledging our desperate dependence on God for the healing of our land, healing of our country. I'm telling you what, I don't care what president's in power, it's not gonna bring healing unless... If my people humble themselves and pray and call upon my name, then I will forgive your sins and I will heal your land. Now some fast from food and they pray for 40 days like Jesus did in the wilderness. Some for a week. My roommate did once for two weeks. I thought he was nuts. Um, roommate in college. Um, some We'll fast for a day. Some will even fast for a meal a week, one meal a week, give up lunch. So that, and they spend concerted time in study and prayer, seeking God. Uh, people can also choose to fast from non-food things, like fast from our busy schedules and activities in order to fatten our souls, as the Puritans said. For example, if you've ever gone on a weekend retreat, men's retreat coming up next weekend, or if you've ever gone on a camping trip, um, a Christian camping or conference, like Promise Keepers or Women's Conference, then essentially you're leaving all of your electronics and your devices and your cell phones behind, all these distractions. You're leaving behind the gaming if you're a high school or middle school kid. You're le leaving behind all of your um, idols and hobbies and these things that eat up all your time and you're fattening your soul on the things of God for the entire weekend or week. And then you leave the retreat and return home a changed person because you fasted from all that busyness. So we can fast in that way as well. More than one way to fast. But God sees our heart and he says, when we do so, he rewards us. Rewards us with himself. So Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. And let's look at the Lord's Prayer again. Our Father, who art in heaven, that's relationship with God. Hallowed be thy name, that's reverence for God. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. Realignment with God's priorities.
Give us this day our daily bread, this reliance upon God. And forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. That's restoration with God and others. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's releasing God's power. That's the Lord's Prayer. Those are the components of prayer when we go to God. We don't have to recite the Lord's Prayer verbatim, but those are the components that, that moves the heart of God. Let's pray. And let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, actually, in, con- in conclusion here. And we'll use um, the word debt, debt and debtor, I guess. Uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.